Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. And I am melting. It is sweltering here in London, um, something like 35 degrees outside. Yeah, I'm sorry if there's a, a interference from the fan in the background, but otherwise I don't think I could function. Never mind. Let's get on with it before I pass out. Um, so we've got a bumper crop this, this week because uh, I'm going to do eight posts. I came back from holiday recently, did a few posts last week and then a full week this, this week. So I'll do them all in one go. Um, and uh, see how we get on. So first back after the break was a podcast and a accompanying transcript with a really fascinating observer of China, Yuanwen Ang, who's become a bit of a friend. I have to say we've exchanged so many emails and uh, got her to come and lecture at the LSE and she's lecturing again this year. Um, she Her first book, China, um, was about how China escaped from poverty and she's now got a new book out called China's Gilded Age, which I reviewed a couple of weeks ago, but this time I sat, I got her on Zoom and we discussed the book. And the book is about a paradox. At least it's a paradox if you read Western political science. Western political science says you need inclusive, functioning, democratic institutions and that otherwise um, your, um, your governance will go wrong and your country will crash and burn. To which the usual response is, well, what about China? China has combined four decades of really, really high-speed growth with four decades of incredibly serious corruption. So the basic starting point for um, Yuan Wenang's book is how do you explain that? Um, and the, the, the Western political science, the best they can usually do is say it's a blip. You know, I call them the blippists. Um, but that's not really, you can't have a 40-year blip, or at least it's not very credible. Um, so Yuan Yuan looks at things differently and she looks at China very, very deeply. She did her PhD there. She's, she gets phenomenal amounts of evidence for her arguments. Um, the, in her first book, she argued that the Chinese Communist Party has got a sort of instinctive grasp of systems thinking. And instead of telling people what to do, it does this thing called directed improvisation, where it gives very general rules, but then everybody, all the bureaucrats in China, and there are something like 50 million of them, um, try and work out how they can get rich by following those particular vague um, uh, uh, rules. On corruption, what she finds is that there are lots of different kinds of corruption, but what China's done is focus, is prosecute people who do the wrong kind of corruption, the kind of corruption that hurts growth, and encourage the kind of corruption which uh, is pro-growth. And uh, she calls this access money. It's the money which speeds up the interaction between state and capital, gets things built, gets roads and um, um, hotels and infrastructure built. And there's been a lot of this money floating around, people getting very rich, both at the top and lower down. And so she's got um, yeah, a very nice argument that certain kinds of corruption are like steroids. So it's not that the access money is always good for corruption. It's like taking steroids and suddenly becoming very, very muscular, but then having all sorts of horrible side effects. And that's what she thinks is going on in China. And she has the reason why it's called China's Gilded Age is because she compares it to um, American history, where the Gilded Age was a period remarkably similar to what's going on in China now. There was a period of rampant corruption, massive construction of infrastructure, the railroads, you know, savage capitalism. Um, and then what happens with these stages and other countries have been through them, too, is that they either lead to a meltdown uh, where, you know, politics is captured by these uh, oligarchs and everything goes horribly wrong. 
or it morphs into something more like legalized corruption, you know, around the rule of law asserts itself, but corruption or that sort of influence takes place through campaign finance, through lobbying, through other ways. So really interesting thesis and a political minefield. People, it's a kind of third rail issue. If you say anything which can be construed as nice about corruption, the internet jumps. So um, Yuan Yuan is having a sort of very interesting time sort of tiptoeing through this argument without ever sounding as though she's saying corruption is a good thing. So and one sort of summary is corruption can be good for growth in the short and medium term. It's not good for development. And that seems to keep everybody happy. The second post was by uh, Sabina Alkaya. Sabina is, uh, runs the OPHI think tank in Oxford, which is trying to put numbers basically on Amartya Sen. Um, so they're trying to measure all those things that Sen talks about in development as freedom and, and metrics so that we can get away from a rather dumb dollar a day poverty, yeah, income poverty figure. And they've come up with something called the multidimensional poverty index, which they've now been doing for 10 years. So Sabina was presenting the headlines from the 10th uh, year, their latest report. Um, <clears throat> and what they do in the, uh, uh, the, the MPI, the multidimensional poverty index, is bring together indicators on health, education, housing, along with income, and try to get a more comprehensive sense of when are people living a life of poverty, of ill-being, and when are they not. Um, so the headlines and what, what, what she can now do is say, well, this is what's changed over the 10 years we've been doing this. And the, the index has been picked up by the UNDP, by some pretty important players. It's definitely become part of the development conversation. So, you know, hats off to OPHI for just bashing away at this, new, this idea for so many years. The headlines are that 65 out of the 75 countries they looked at have statistically significant reductions in multidimensional poverty over time. And it may well be that multidimensional poverty is a bit smoother than income poverty, which bounces up and down with each recession. Um, and this may be a sort of, you know, have a smoothing effect. Um, and she concludes that the two key challenges are data and analysis. On data, we have to include new dimensions like work, violence, shocks, disempowerment, climate change. Um, and to update more often, because often the poverty figures are only done once a decade and, and the rest of the time they're just inferred from other data like GDP. Um, but on the analysis, she's saying, look, we're going to make all our stuff open access. It's all online. Come on, people. Come in, play around with the data. See what else you can sort of, what other juice you can extract from all this data on multidimensional poverty. So that's an open invitation to the poverty nerds around the world to get stuck in. Next post was on um, by someone called Paul Knox Clark, who I think is a really smart observer of the humanitarian system. I've had a couple of things by him in the past. Um, and he got in touch and said he wanted to write something about what, what does COVID tell us about responding to the climate crisis? And his aim is to identify some key trends in the response to the pandemic or to think about what they mean for humanitarian responses in an increasingly uncertain and unpleasant future. And the unpleasant bit is climate is the climate crisis and he's got some broad conclusions you know there's no point in having an early warning system even a really clever one if governments don't actually believe in science that's a pretty big um, caveat um, that an international crisis does not necessarily lead to international cooperation these are not happy conclusions but if you look at the failure of international cooperation on covid the scramble for ppe the future scramble for vaccines 
it makes you pretty gloomy about a, a coordinated cooperative response to climate change. The governments have tended to see people as the problem rather than part of the solution. So a lot of the response to COVID has been clamping down on things and clamping down on civil society, clamping down on freedom of expression, not thinking all that activity and freedom of expression could help us find answers. Definitely not. Not That's not the, the way a lot of governments are seeing it. Um, but but he still thinks what we've seen in the response is that local civil society groups are likely to become even more important to emergency response than they already are. So into the whole localization discussion, which I've talked about a lot on the blog. So his conclusion is, what has COVID-19 taught us so far? The importance of preparedness, partnership, citizen participation, local action and organisational resilience. Humanitarian readers may have seen these recommendations somewhere before. They may indeed have seen them repeated endlessly in every evaluation, at every meeting and workshop, in every policy for years. That was before COVID. It was before the earth moved out of the climatic and ecological conditions that have existed for the entirety of human history. Words won't do it now. So he's basically saying, listen to us because it just got a lot more important and it's going to get even more important with climate change. Next post was a, uh, a links I liked, a roundup of the things I've retweeted or um, liked on Twitter, um, the best ones. Um, the first bit was something which I suppose I probably shouldn't have uh, talked about because it's, it's kind of um, shooting myself in the foot, but it's about the way the UK funds development research. So the UK is a major funder of development research and DFID in particular puts a lot of money into some very interesting research and I'm, you know, full, full disclosure, um, I, you know, I'm involved in some of that research. But the Centre for Global Development is saying, yes, but hold on a minute, quite a long time ago now, aid donors agreed to untie aid to stop saying you can have food aid as long as you buy our food. You can have, you know, uh, infrastructure aid as long as you buy our, use our contractors now, our infrastructure firms. But in research, it's still incredibly tied. An awful lot of UK research funding goes to UK universities like the London School of Economics. And CGD says, that ain't right. It, I mean, it may be that UK research universities are just absolutely brilliant, but I don't think anyone believes that. So they're saying... Let's look again at how you could untie research funding. And I think that's a really important um, thing. No one's talking about that. Possibly we're all just bought out and compromised. Good for CGD for doing it. Uh, there was also a bit of lefty nostalgia. So I live in a place in London called Brixton. And in 1981, there were some huge uh, race riots here um, uh, between black youth and the police primarily. And in light of Black Lives Matter, um, there was a really interesting interview um, with uh, Leila Hassan and Farouk Dondi of Race Today. So Race Today was a magazine that was actually based at the end in a squat at the end of my road. I, I mean, I can almost see it from where I'm sitting. And they reminisced about the Brixton struggle in, of 1981 and what it means for BLM today. So I, I was very sort of, it was nice to read that. Then next post was I, I spent a horrendous 12 hours on Zoom plus preparation time last week in uh, on the advisory group of something called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, which is a five-year research program now entering its last year, uh, coordinated by the Institute for Development Studies in Sussex, um, trying to understand how empowerment and accountability function in fragile and violent settings. So places like Myanmar, Nigeria, Mozambique, Egypt and Pakistan. Other countries they've most looked at. 
So it's a really interesting program. It's a really interesting program partly because the country teams, in especially in Nigeria, Myanmar, Mozambique and Pakistan, are really strong, really national. It's not lots of expats. Um, and they basically run the show and run the research. And that's really interesting. Uh, but that strong national foundation also creates a challenge, which is, you know, okay, we want to tell the story of Pakistan, tell the story of Nigeria as far as we can. But isn't it also interesting to try and find cross-country patterns um, uh, and say this is what we think is generally the case that might be worth looking at in terms of empowerment and accountability in these places? And that becomes much harder when you're actually rooted in, in country research. So this is what we were trying to do um, in this three-day Zoom call. And they, they did pick up a few really interesting, I think, patterns and, uh, and narratives. One is the importance of intermediaries. They identified that whether through fear or lack of trust or lack of access, people who are really marginalised almost never try and resolve their problems by talking to the authorities. They're too scared. They don't know who they are. They just don't feel confident and don't, don't have the trust. They use a range of intermediaries. So elders, retired officials, religious leaders, local politicians. And they go to them and say, can you fix my problem? I, you know, This has happened. Someone got beaten up. They, we've got no streetlights. You know, whatever the problem is. They go to these intermediaries and say, can you fix it? Well, that's that uh, that's really interesting. But we don't know much about the, the ecosystem of intermediaries. For example, do they actually help people or are they predators? And when are they either? You know, and um, when are they effective? When are they not? And can aid donors and others work with them or are they just a completely separate ecosystem? So, yeah, really you know, good research agenda there. Second one is something I've talked about quite a lot, partly because I, I, I partly came up, I think, with the idea, which is they're doing the A4EA is doing a series of governance diaries where you send students back to talk to the same families every month for six months or a year in really poor communities. And you say, well, OK, talk to me about your month. What problems have you had this month? Well, how did you try and resolve them? And you get a sort of bottom up picture of how people actually um, resolve their problems. And it was those diaries that surfaced this issue of intermediaries. So, yeah, I was pushing hard to say, OK, well, this is really interesting. You know, someone described it as cut price ethnography. You get a bottom up picture of what's really of the real world of poor families without a PhD student sitting there for two years. Um, so why not expand them? Why not have diaries interviewing street level bureaucrats, leaders, women leaders, youth leaders, religious leaders, maybe even donors, you know, a, a diffid diary. All of these, well, I think, would find new stuff, which is really would be really valuable and complement our understanding. When you go in and just interview everybody once, you don't build the trust, you don't get the full story. And these diaries build up trust and a bigger picture over a period of six months or a year or two years. And I think it's a really great methodology. Final point, the gulf between empowerment and accountability. So the, the program is called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, as though they're all linked. Well, what they found is, that actually empowerment doesn't necessarily lead to accountability. And often, you know, if people riot and get a price rise cancelled, you know, often fuel riots are very common against energy price rises or petrol price rises, they get a, a fleeting sense of agency during and immediately after protests. So they're inspired by taking action, by winning, by getting people to listen to them for the first time. But often then the state plays a longer game. It backtracks once the people have left the streets. Nothing much seems to change. So I think those are three areas which I think are really important. And, and in the last year of the programme, we'll try and 
crystallise what we've learnt about those three things and they might form the basis for a follow-up programme. Every research programme always tries to invent a follow-up programme to try and keep the funding flowing. I think there might be some good justification for this in this case. But I would say that, wouldn't I? Next, next was just something I spotted on Twitter. It was a really nice graph. Uh, and it was the title was The Emotional Chemistry of Rebellions from somebody called uh, Ricardo Levins Morales, who is an artist somewhere in the US, maybe Michigan, I think. Um, and what he said was that you get these different tendencies, different emotions in a rebellion, which operate against each other and sort of determine the overall fate. So the first one is outrage. But as he put it, outrage burns fast and hot. It releases a great deal of courage, but has limited staying power as a primary fuel. It's best only as a starter fuel. When outrage burns down to ashes, fear is only starting its upward slope. Fear takes longer to peak and is slower to break down. Fear can replace outrage as a dominant chemical, leading to paralysis, unless enough hope-supporting factors are in place. So the third emotion is hope. When change doesn't come quickly or there are setbacks, it can lead to disappointment, which underneath is the fear that our dream will not be realised. So if hope is the fuel of sustainable organising, what are the factors that support hope? And Ricardo Levens morales says a compelling vision, strong social networking, sufficient resourcing, financial, emotional, physical, effective organisation, trusted, trusted leadership, the ability to process and learn together, and a culture of self-transformation and integrity. And I think it's really interesting that sort of doing a kind of emotionscape of these uh, protests, but of other movements too. It's, you know, it'd be really interesting to do that with the mutual aid response to COVID, where you had this enormous upsurge of altruism, people wanting to help their neighbours. And then a lot of it, in a lot of places, that's run out of steam. Turns out their neighbours didn't want to be helped, or people just got fed up with it, or they had arguments, or just, you know, things happen. Um, so you could do a similar sort of uh, emotionscape of um, uh, that or of any other movement. I think it's a really interesting approach. Then uh, next post was a, a, a unashamed plug for the LSE uh, where I've you know, in lockdown. We thought we were thinking, what can we do in lockdown? You know, we're sat at home and I thought, well, I don't really know what most of my colleagues in the International Development Department do. So why don't I just ask them and we'll do it as a series of 15 minute podcasts with the very unoriginal title of Zooming In on LSE's International Development Department. Get it? Um, but actually it turned out to be really interesting. And I like the format, which is it's a, I try and keep them to 15 minutes. Five minutes is about the person, where they grew up, you know, what their formative influences were, what kind of person they are, which is usually very cursory. But actually, I think it's one of the most, was one of the most interesting bits of the interviews. You know? And then five minutes on something they're fired up about in terms of their research which they always want to talk about. And then five minutes about what is that, what insights does that research give you about what's been going on with COVID? And I, I like the blend there and I think they, 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 they were fun. In the end, the, um, they said, well, why can't we do it to you? So I was kind of um, put on the, uh, on, on, on the psychiatrist's couch and Jean-Paul Faget from LSE did an interview with me on um, Zooming in, which was also kind of fun, uh, although I don't think I did particularly well. And then the final post of this marathon, and I hope you're still with me, um, was a book review of a really interesting book by um, somebody who uh, called Roman Krasnarich, who I've known for ages. Um, 
And Roman's a public philosopher, which is a hell of a job title, um, and writes books about really yeah, big ideas like empathy. Um, and this latest book is saying, the moment has come, especially for those living in wealthy nations, to recognise a disturbing truth, that we have colonised the future. We treat the future like a distant colonial outpost devoid of people, where we can freely dump ecological degradation, technological risk and nuclear waste, and which we can plunder as we please. So that's really interesting. So what Roman is saying is that the future is a bit like slaves were before the abolition of slavery. There are, they are people and, in, and planet being exploited who have no voice. And so the answer for him is to try and deal with, and he says that people recognise that this is a problem, that short-termism is a problem, that we need to get to long-termism, but there are very few ideas about how to do that, and he calls that a conceptual emergency. Another nice phrase. He's great with words. And he offers six kind of visionary and practical ways to cultivate long-term thinking and create a long-now civilization. And the reason why he's a little, fairly optimistic, he's not over the top, he's quite, you know, he thinks all of these are kind of long shots, but we've got to give them a go, um, is that he spotted and talked to a bunch of people he calls time rebels, another great phrase. So people who are rebelling against short-termism and doing things in, in economics, um, it, it, notably his partner, he's, he's um, uh, the partner of Kate Rayworth of Donut Economics fame. So I'd love to be sitting around the dinner table with those two. Um, but also in politics, in culture, in music, in literature, there are people who are deliberately, and increasing numbers of them, pushing this long-term uh, vision of the world. Um, and, that, and he says that that means we're not enslaved by our marshmallow brains, which is that part of our brain which grabs the next sugar rush, but that we are actually actively developing our acorn brains, which want to plant acorns and create mighty oak trees centuries into the future. And there's lovely ideas in here. I, I, I mean, I've, there's not time to give you many of them, but he's particularly exercised about the invention of the clock, which just makes you look again at your clock and your phone and all the rest of it. He thinks it was a disaster. And the underlying reason why it was a disaster was it changed people's conception of time from circular, the seasons, the days, nights, days, to linear. And he has this fantastic quote from Charles Dickens describing the office of Mr. Gradgrind as uh, where there was a deadly statistical clock which measured every second with a beat like a rap upon a coffin lid. I really wish people in aid and development wrote like that, but they don't. But never mind. Uh, at, least, um, at least Roman is quoting somebody. So um, thanks for sticking with me this long. Uh, that was a long one. Next week won't be so long. Uh, and I'll see you soon. Bye.